Tennessee, part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd, and I'm joined here by my colleagues, Dr. Paul Jean, Dr. Peter Lee, and Dr. Tommy Keene. And we're actually going to continue on in our discussion of reading strategies, but this time we're not going to look at a book. We're actually going to talk about a theme that shows up throughout all of Scripture, and you can do this in uh, with with a bunch of different themes. And so, as we're talking about these reading strategies, we realized it's important for us to also sit back every once in a while and talk about the themes that are thread through Scripture and tie Scripture together. And so, the one that we're going to talk about today is the theme of kingship, the theme of royalty, of ruling, of dominion. Let me start the question this way. What is the value, the meaning of kingship in the Bible? And is kingship necessary in scripture? I think a lot of Christians actually, having read Samuel, which we discussed recently in our reading strategy series, uh, they believe that, well, no, when Israel asked for a king, uh, God said, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me by asking for a king. And so it raises the question, was the kingship a good thing for Israel to seek? Is it a good thing for us to seek? Should we desire a king? So let's start off with the question coming at it from that angle. What's the meaning of kingship in scripture? I was thinking as you were kind of, as you were talking about this, one of the, I, part of your question is, does kingship begin with Samuel? Right. And while while kingship proper in in terms of like the fact that Israel is a nation and needs an actual king at least at this time kingship proper politically begins at Samuel but the idea of kingship goes back to the garden yeah, that right. a- Adam is image bearer he is a he's I think I think it's Klein Peter that calls Adam the uh, a vice regent of God that he is to be, he is a regal figure and as such is to be fruitful and to multiply uh, and to cause his dominion to flourish, which is at that time the garden, but the garden is to spread. It is to continue. So even though the word king doesn't occur, and this is an important concept hermeneutically when you're thinking about themes in the Bible, um, the word may not be there, but if the concept is there, then we need to include those texts as well. And the concept of kingship, of rule after God's own heart, is an Adamic one. Yeah, and even though you don't see that word king literally, you do see language in Genesis 1 like uh, fill the earth and subdue it. That language of subduing is dominion language. Right. It's about having dominion, being kings. Right. That, that's part of our image bearing nature is that we're kings over the earth. Right. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we talk about image, it, you know, Tommy, you mentioned earlier that that is a, in a sense, a royal, a term of royalty. Um, in fact, you know, when we talk about Adam as um, having that royal function, people talk about Adam having a priestly function and he's called neither uh, in Genesis one or two, but he is given terms that is used priestly mm-hmm. and, and, uh, royal terms as well. So the idea of Adam being a representational King, you know, that the Lord is the great King by being creator, being, um, enthroned on the Sabbath. He is the great creator King. And the way that he providentially, uh, decided to rule 
in creation was by means of a representative. Right. And that's, in this case, that's uh, humanity and Adam and Eve. And that becomes sort of the standard um, in a sense of kingship. I don't really like to use the word king for Adam or anything pre-David truthfully. And, and, and the reason why is because it does seem to diminish when Israel transitions into a monarchy, into an actual office of a king. Uh, so I, I like to use the term of royal function or kingly function or mm -hmm. something like that prior to David. Um, or yeah, excuse me. That's right. Prior to the to the monarchy stage of Israel, just to um, reinforce that idea that when Israel does become uh, is given an earthly monarch, an earthly king, that is a significant stage of development, uh, biblical theologically. Um, so as as terminology goes, I, I just started to preserve the, that term, those terms in that sense. So uh, David was a king, but Adam had a kingly function. I think that's really it's seeing that Adamic royal function there is incredibly important for understanding the just trajectory of redemptive history from beginning to end. That's why this is why the fall is such a awful thing. It it's not only an Adam and not only curses Adam, it brings the whole world to the curse because as Adam goes, so goes his dominion, and Adam is to be king over all of the earth. And when he fails, um, just like when the kings of Israel fail, he, they bring Israel into the state of cursing. So when Adam fails, he brings the whole world into the state of cursing, uh, the state of curse. And then you fast forward to the end. Um, we should talk about Jesus probably at some point, but fast forwarding to the end, you know, we see that the whole world groans for its redemption. Uh, Romans 8 um I consider the present suffer the sufferings of the present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why does the creation groan now? Because Adam's children are not yet enthroned over it, and we're waiting for that day when, um, when we're restored to rule. You can follow mm -hmm. that thread. Of course, between those two, the beginning point in Genesis 1 and that end point in the new heavens and new earth, and you can follow that throughout redemptive history. Uh, you follow with Abraham. What happened? Abraham has promised that kings will come out of him, and it's reiterated in, for Jacob, right? In Genesis 35, nations and kings will come out of you. Moses is given rules for kingship in Deuteronomy 17, even before they have a king. Yeah, therefore, I mean, indicating that this idea of the king is not something that's sort of like a, um, you know, plan B. You know, if we had just been faithful, we wouldn't need a king on earth, but that this was always a part of the redemptive plan. And by the time you get to David and Solomon, Peter, you know, I love your point. You're right. We haven't had a king yet, and yet we've had kingly functions. And interestingly, you know, the author of Kings makes that connection too, I think, in kind of a subtle way, because you have Solomon who is starts his reign as kind of the son that we've all been waiting for, right? He's the son of David. David just got a covenant and says, I'm going to establish this throne of your son forever. David's not appropriate. It's the son of David who will receive the forever throne. And the drama of Kings is that, well, maybe Solomon is that guy. And actually, as it starts off, it looks like he might be that guy. He might be that king that we've all been waiting for, right? And then there's this interesting thing, you know, in 1 Kings 4, it's, it's, it's setting up all the things he's done. He's built out 
uh, the the boundaries of the land to the promised boundaries given to Abraham, the sea of Egypt, the waters of uh, rivers of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Uh, he does it for the first time. It hadn't happened yet, right? He he writes all of his father's um, you know open accounts. He goes and he takes care of all business, and then it says he speaks in proverbs, and then it says and he also knew all kinds. Of different plants and animals, which you might you hear that and you go, well, what's that about? It's very Adam. It's very Adamic, right? It's almost like I mean, I, I, you know, it's it's almost like you're having an early Old Testament notion of we need we had one Adam, we now need the last Adam, right? We need an Adam who will be the kind of king who can do where what Adam failed in doing, and then of course Solomon proves that he's not that person either we have to wait for another but you have that kind of trajectory forward of this need for an adam king to come back and to complete what adam failed at and that really is in many ways the biblical theme um of of kingship if you really think about everything you said is totally right you have david and the covenant of david in second samuel 7 is such a you know watershed moment in this theme developmentally because there you have now the promise of kingship in the line of David, uh, so that's what you're looking for. It, it's a it's a son of David, and that's what you're tracing out. And and you and you're exactly right. You, you have Solomon. You think he's going to be the guy that's going to build this temple and and finally stabilize Israel. And you realize as you read uh, Kings, that's not the guy. But the promise is a good promise. The The promise of a king is a good promise. We need good, godly, stable, royal leadership, someone who's going to care for God's people and someone who's going to instill the law of God in God's, in God's people. So, you know, the Deuteronomic, uh, back to Deuteronomy, the, the job description, remember, of the Israelite king uh, in Deuteronomy 17, that he's basically reading, studying, copying Deuteronomy and teaching the people Deuteronomy to mm-hmm. to instill that that sense of fidelity and obedience. You know, the, the the record of the kings in Israel's history is that they didn't do any of that. That's mm-hmm. why they went into exile. But the promise is a good one. That that image of the that a Davidic Deuteronomic king is a good promise. What we need is just an ideal king, a a Deuteronomy 17 king, and we've just never had that. You know, by the time of the exile, you realize even David wasn't that. That's why we're in exile. But again, we just need that that sort of heightened, idealized, uh, glorified son of David, and that's sort of the post-exilic tension or anticipation. And so uh, that's sort of the reason why we get these idealistic pictures of this messianic figure in the book of Psalms and in uh, chronicles in uh e- e- i can i would argue even for proverbs does the same thing which is why the wise man in proverbs is uh, is also a moral man an upright man a, a judicious man and and how wisdom in proverbs is so limited in that corpus in a way that uh it, you don't see it anywhere else and um and it's it's just really the the perfect socio-theological setup for the rise of christ he he just comes at the time when the expectation is exactly this, um, and thus fulfilling that Second Samuel seventeen promise. So you can appreciate how bold it is when Jesus starts preaching and his message. I mean, we can summarize. He gives us a summary. All the Gospels give us a summary of his essential message as he's traveling across uh, Judea. Um, it's 
the kingdom has come mm-hmm. and repent for the for the kingdom of God is near. That kingdom language picks out all of that from Adam through Israel, the I the the salvation of God for the whole earth. Focus now on one man. Yeah, Jesus that's Christ. it's totally right. I think the uh, you know I it was Voss in in his uh, book on my goodness I can't I never get that title right the book about the kingdom of God and the church I can't remember the exact title. <laughs> well, I think uh, 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 Ned Stonehouse used to say this is a book that every theologian really should read once a year. But in the book he I think it was that book where Voss says. Uh, that 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 when Jesus came preaching the kingdom, that's exactly what he said. The kingdom of a uh, kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom is now come. But what he doesn't say is the kingdom has returned, meaning that it was restored. He says it in such a way that the kingdom had never come before, hmm. and that does seem to be significant. That at the time of Christ, as the eschatological David, the eschatological Solomon, the the king that we've been expecting. That the kingdom he's bringing is of such a different magnitude and order that the previous kingdom state of Israel really was no kingdom at all yeah. in light of the reality. Yeah. And yeah. we and we speak the same thing about the kingship ide- or the king identity in, in Christ as well. You're thinking of uh, Voss's coming of the kingdom. I think it's the title. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't creative with his titles. Well, that's Ritter Voss, right? Oh, oh, Ritterboss. Yeah, you're thinking Kingdom of God and the Church, I, I think. Yeah, I can't boss. remember. that the, he, he wrote a, tie, a book. I can't remember the exact title. I know the word Kingdom of God and Church is in there. It's Kingdom of God and the Church. I think that's what it's called. Um, yeah, but this like, theme is really helpful for like helping people to understand the gospel. Because I think like when we think about the gospel in terms of kingship, we see that Jesus has not just forgiven us of our sins, but that his glory will someday be our glory. Mm. And the author that probably really took this idea well was uh, uh, C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia, where he's portraying like these children who ultimately become like, you know, kings, queens, princes. And I think there's that sense like when we incorporate this idea into our understanding of the gospel, you know, like it's not just our past sins have been forgiven, we can anticipate something glorious as we see in the book of revelation that um we see all the nations and like all the realms almost worshiping the king but what's amazing is that's our destiny as well because of the gospel so i think this theme really can enrich people's understanding of what the gospel is yeah it reminds you of what you've been saved unto unto right not just what you're saved from and there is that strong union with Christ idea there, you know, yeah. that we are co-heirs with Christ. More than in, conquerors. More than yeah. conquerors, that we rule in the heavenly realms. The keys of the kingdom. You just, if you, as you start thinking about it, just verses start yeah. just popping up. All the ways in which Christ is in our union with him, you know, distributing the benefits of the kingdom to us. Right. I mean, there are applications of, uh, you know, Psalm 2, that royal enthronement, mm-hmm. um, uh, mm. installation psalm is, mm. that allegedly is used at the uh, coronation of all kings. Uh, there's a line there that's applied, you know, that the that the enthroned son of David will uh, crush his enemies with an iron rod. Um, but if you read Revelation 2, uh, it, it quotes it but applies it to the church, which mm. is really remarkable because there it is doing that union idea here that in union with Christ, 
Psalm 2 is not just about the eschatological David. It's not just about Jesus. In union with Christ, this is describing the church. This is describing us uh, in terms of our ultimate enthronement as co-heirs in union with Christ. Hmm. So let me let me then go back to our question. We've talked through how the office develops and finds its perfect fulfillment in Christ. We've talked about how being a king means ruling. So there are other parts of uh, the office of the kingship that we see that we, where the word might not be mentioned, and yet we need to recognize, oh, this is kingly language, right? We've seen, we've already said that a little bit too. There's kingly language is being used. And I find it helpful actually to help people think, okay, so when you see something like Peter, you mentioned wisdom literature in Solomon, wisdom literature would be a part of the kingly office in by biblical lights, right? It's, it's most of it's discussing events of the court. Uh, Solomon is the, the main old Testament sage from the father of sages. Jesus shows how he's the greater Solomon by saying one greater than Solomon is here in his wisdom. Uh, Paul calls Christ wisdom. Christ crucified is the wisdom of God. You know, this is kingly language, wisdom, as, a, as opposed to, say, for instance, prophetic oracles, right, which are clearly something more of the prophetic office. But wisdom literature and wisdom is a kingly office primarily. Uh, there are other things like building campaigns. This is how I think we can see in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is a building campaign. It's about building a palace and placing your image in it. And building campaigns are typically kingly offices where you when you hear about the building of the kingdom, right? You're talking about Christ's kingly office, chief cornerstone, right? The, all of this building language is referencing that whole umbrella topic, we could say, that is king. I'd even argue creatorness yeah. is kingly language, right? Um, what else? What else are we missing? Are there any other things that as people are reading, it might not say king, but it's something that kind of, connects more themes together throughout the course of scripture. What are, what are some of the other threads you can pull to get to King? Well, this might be a stretch, but you know, my mind has been on Galatians for different reasons. And, you know, when you see Paul, like trying to defend the gospel, I think we might see it through our contemporary lens of like, he's just engaged in a debate, but it's interesting how it's, he feels like the King's glory is being like, mm. um, disregarded or minimized right and so i think when we understand it in light of like you know recently obviously uh we uh, mourned the death of queen elizabeth right and there's so much reverence you know if you if you saw it attached to it um if you saw someone just like watching as the ceremony was going and like popping gum i think there would be many people just so insulted by that right and so when we think about why paul it's almost like belligerent or angry if we look at it through not just this is a debate of ideas but this is really protecting the king's glory mm. it seems to make more sense along those lines yeah it's inappropriate yeah Something not to honor or unfitting the, yeah. yeah the glory or the reverence due to the king i think that's actually true if you think about isaiah 6 you know even where isaiah is getting his call and what do you have you know here's the holiness of God that's on display. But what's interesting is God is depicted on his throne. So it's kind of a holiness glory picture, but it's coming out of his, his sitting on the throne in the divine throne room. Right. And oftentimes in the 
Old Testament and in some New Testament you know, theophanies. God's depicted on a throne, and yet when you try to look at him in their own ancient Near Eastern way, we'd, we'd say something like there were lasers and beams shooting out of him. But what how they say there? There's fire and flashing of lightning, you know, and glimmering steel because all of that is light in that a- a- language. You know, glory is emanating from the throne. There is a real interesting image, actually, Paul, when you mention uh, the idea of glory with kingship of Moses. Again, Moses was not a king, but he had a royal function in a manner of speaking. But when you know, when it describes Moses going up in Exodus 32, 33, going up to Sinai and entering into the glory of God, returning back down, and then he adds that radiant glory. Um, it describes, the, uh, it, 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 the Hebrew actually says that he, it, the radiant glory is, is like horns of glory, but it's actually the word horn in a verb. He, you know, the radiant light is horning out of him, I guess, is what it, what it looks like. So it's not that he's radiating glory. It looks like uh, horns that are coming, uh, kind of emanating from his head, in a manner of speaking, almost like a throne, like a crown. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a, and that's the glory that is being reflected, the glory of God that Moses sort of um, absorbs a bit that that is radiating out. That And, and the corn, as you know, is a very strong, royal image mm-hmm. uh and um and is constantly used like in psalm 89 a big Dave, covenant of david psalm mm-hmm. is used there all the time uh in references to uh, uh to the king and so uh, so there that is a real intriguing idea i'd add uh you know if we're talking about kingship language and connected concepts uh, we need to throw in son of god son of man both of those mm-hmm. G- jesus's favorite title for himself son of man is is a royal title uh, gets that from the Psalms. Um, what is man that you are mindful of, the son of man that you care for him? Answer, you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything under his feet. Yeah. And that, of course, is climactically true yeah. of Christ. And then we, as sons of of God, yeah. through Christ, adopted sons uh, uh, and daughters of, through Christ, rule. Yeah. You know, we, we are crowned right you know as you said with with the glory of the greater son yeah that's so cool because because psalm 2 is exactly that the the day of the enthronement of the human son of david as king is the day that he has declared you are my son Mm -hmm. so it's interesting how that uh what looks like um adoption language a sonship language is used in the context of royalty you are now you know, in a sense, you're you're son of God by creation, by image, but now you are son of God uh, in a way you weren't before because now you've been crowned uh, king. And so that term, son of God, you know, it comes right out of Second uh, Samuel seven, Psalm two. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, goes way back to even Genesis five, and uh-huh. and how image is associated with sonship. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, so yeah, a lot. Even the adoption language, I suspect that we read in in Paul. I wonder how much of that is, uh, you know, adoption into sonship, meaning kingship. That you are now kings in a sense because you are sons of God. And that I mean, Paul mentioned that Narnia language earlier, and I love that image of you know, if you read the magician's nephew, there's these four seats that are embedded in in creation that have been empty. They're waiting for someone to sit in. Uh, And likewise, the redemptive historical trajectory of scripture, 
the creation was made for Adamic rule and has been, Adam abrogated that authority and that seat has been empty until the son, Jesus, the son of man, the son of God sits in it. Uh, and now all of creation is crowned with glory and honor because the true son has sat in that seat at the right hand of the father. No. And this, you know, these themes, this isn't, it's not like magic or like there's a secret decoder ring that explains it. This is just a close reading of scripture. And you start to notice that kings do certain things, as we've been talking about. Kings are described in certain ways. Um, but, but I think what's cool and really helpful is how we're able to take what looks like uh, random, non-related themes, wisdom, sonship, um, glory, glory radiance, image, and see that this is all can be uh, kind of cohesively organized into one conceptual idea mm -hmm. of king. So these are not, you know, just random themes that you can just trace on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you can do that, but it's actually part of a larger development uh, from a biblical theological standpoint. And even uh, I would throw in there, you know, obedience. Mm -hmm. You know, since the king out of Deuteronomy 17 is expected to obey the book of Deuteronomy, the law of God. Um, in fact, that's, you know, Deuteronomy 17 essentially gives prohibitions. Here's what you won't do. You're not going to have a big army, a lot of horses. You're not going to have a lot of wives. You're not going to have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Here's positive what you will do. You're going to read, copy, and study Deuteronomy. <laughs> yeah, the king, the king is a, obeys the law and then encourages obedience. He's a law and is the lawgiver and the judge. And so the raw law, it's just, yeah, they all, and all those mm -hmm. themes intersect. It's, it's a beautiful yeah. thing. And in many ways, the, uh, you could almost read the history of Israel, not as a history of Israel, but a, a biography of the history of the kings and their effect on the history, on the people of Israel. Uh, because as the king goes, you know, so the people go, you know, the, the, the commentary here is that if you, if you can establish a godly leadership that is Deuteronomic, that is obedient that can encourage obedient, the nation will be fine. But the the history is to show you that your kings were part of the problem, mm -hmm. but you just need a a good king. Mm -hmm. And so obviously you'd be distinguishing king. Some of you listening might say, well, wait, so king just is everything then, right? So how is this a helpful category? And you're like, well, actually you can look at priest and see, well, priest operates in a different realm or sphere of ideas and the prophet oper operates in a different realm and then you have these other themes that kind of tie things together as a matter of fact we've already started talking a lot about covenant as a theme and, and i've even argued the father son language which are both kingly terms right kings are called fathers our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come right these are covenantal terms and that also explains why the king is an administrator of the law, because he's an administrator of the covenant. That's all the law is. The law is an expression of the covenant. You know, so you have these overlapping themes. It's not like there are fine, discrete categories. Um, and yet it's helpful to sit down and be able to see, okay, there are certain ideas that are sort of coagulating around certain themes. And as you get to understand them, they're not infinite. They're finite. There's a, there's, a, there's a handful of these kind of major themes. You start to see, wow, the scripture really is telling this one big grand narrative. And it's one of the great contributions of the biblical theological movement of the last 150 years or so is to recognize those themes and start drawing those out for exegesis and, uh, and interpretation.
So thanks for this conversation. Uh, that's all we've got for today, but thanks for being here, folks. And it's great to have you listening at home. And uh, if you'd like to hear more about RTS Washington, go to rts.edu forward slash Washington. You can also post questions to our podcast by going to the show notes there and you'll see a link to where you can post questions. We've got a few and we'll, we'll answer them in upcoming episodes. Um, we look forward to being with you again. Until then, take care. This is your area, Peter, but I have thoughts. Well, you know what? Let me uh, kind of piggyback off of what you say. Well, it's always good to start in the epilogue, so let's start with the New Testament. Let's see. <laughs> I was going to start where it all begins because Genesis 1. Even though, so I was thinking as just you just to be ge- clear, <laughs> uh, just to be clear, Genesis 1. Uh,